0: Phone. There we go. I like to post our sermons online. It helps people learn the Bible. Number three, it spiritually stretches the preacher and deepens his understanding of God. I like this one. It says, probably because I'm a preacher, right? It says, if a preacher will commit to preaching through entire books of the Bible, he will find himself dealing with difficult and complex passages, not only for me, but also for you as the congregation, hearing and listening. Difficult and complex passages he might otherwise have avoided kind of following that one, it says, number four is it puts controversial or hot topic issues in their proper place. So it's not just that um, often a preacher has their hobby horses, so things they might want to preach about every Sunday because it's the thing that they really are about, or maybe it's the the sin that they're really good at not doing, and so they like preaching about it because it makes them feel good. So preaching through books of the Bible kind of stops that, right, because you have to deal with the text as it comes up. So the hobby horse might be something political that always gets preached about. But when we preach through the books of the Bible, if a hot topic or a political topic or some social topic comes up, it's because it's part of the text that we're we're working through and we're preaching through. um, He writes this, and says, thus he gets around to the social issues when the Bible does. Not whenever he wants to. Number five, it helps Christians see the full storyline of redemption. I shared about that the biblical um, theology complex. When we preach through the books of the Bible, it sees Christ in the whole story as we work through different parts of Scripture. And following with that one, it more greatly magnifies the glory of Jesus. Jesus Christ himself said to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, even the old covenant scriptures, the Old Testament, are about me. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. Number seven, this is is an interesting one I don't know if I ever think about. It fosters congregational patience and endurance and commitment to the word. Now I know, um, I think it was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I could be mistaken, who took like eight years preaching through the book of Romans. Um, don't don't worry. I'm I'm more than likely not going to do that. Um, I'm hoping that it takes us a few months to get through John. Um, But it's a different context, right? We live in a very mobile society. He lived in a society where people lived there and generation after generation. Um, So he did have decades to preach to the same people over and over again. But this patience and endurance and commitment to the word A pastor who commits to showing Christ week after week through book after book rewires the short intention spans of ourselves and modern congregants to the spiritual fruit of patience and the Christian virtue of endurance and the church's mandate to be people of the book. Number eight, it creates a longer pastoral and congregational legacy, right? We live in a world where, well, we don't just have... The sermons printed and passed out anymore, but sermons are are posted online and shared, right? And they're not shared so that like we get so many hits and the pastor becomes like a super mega church pastor with some kind of crazy uh, celebrity influence, but that so people might see Christ and know Him more. So back to the book of John, just kind of an intro about why we are preaching, why we preach through books. It doesn't mean we're not going to have a topical series. Or a series that um, is not from a book of the Bible, but a, generally speaking, that we will preach through books of the Bible as a general rule. So the book of John, John actually waits in the second to the last chapter to give us his purpose, mission statement, about why he is writing this book. And he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the, is the Christ, right? the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is the purpose of John's Gospel. It is for the Christian, it is for the non-Christian. For the non-Christian that they might see Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and trust in him so that they may too have life. And then continuing on for now for the Christian, that we might continue in that way of life, and not stray and fall into the way of death and destruction. You see, the Christian life is not just a prayer to be said and to move on. Say, well, you know, now I got my, um, you know, Monopoly get out of hell free card. But the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. It's a life here and now, but not fully yet. And we see this all over scripture. We see that Christ talks about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that Christ's reign is now, yes, he has come and he has died and he has rose again and he has ascended so that he's at the right hand of God interceding and advocating for us on our behalf. But it's not fully yet. We still live in a fallen and broken world. A world where there's sin and there's broken relationships. A world where we patiently wait Christ's return. Where he's fully inaugurated. And this life... In Christ is life-giving and hopeful. There's no more important question than the one Jesus Christ asked his disciples. He said, who do you say that I am? Peter jumps in, answers quickly. Go, of course, Lord, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then quickly, right, he, when Jesus is arrested, being tried, beaten, and tortured, he quickly says, I'm not really... I don't know, like, I mean, yeah, I've seen him, but I don't really know him. This question is the most important question of all time. And Jesus asks it to his disciples, and it's recorded for us to ask it of ourselves. Who do you say that I am? It's been under attack for as long as Christ has been with us, died and rose again. Even in early Christianity, even still today, this question is one that we have to defend. Right? The correct answer to the question, in some respects, is simple enough for a child to be saved. Right? Who do you say that Jesus is? But it's so complex enough that it keeps theologians busy throughout centuries and centuries. He was just a man, some say, some said he's God, but he's not fully God, he's just a little bit less than God. In these first five verses of John, he he summarizes who Jesus is in three ways. Jesus is the divine word, Jesus is the saving word, and Jesus is the life-giving word. And John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, sets the tone for us. We read these first five verses, and we can't help but think back to Genesis. Right, that was John's, he, he did that on purpose. Right, it wasn't an accident. That John kind of parallels Genesis 1, 1, and John 1, 1. It brings us back to the very beginning, to the foundations of this world, where all that was made was made. Right, Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus was there. He was there in the beginning. In fact, the world and all that is in it was created by and through him. He is the creator God. Without apology or qualification, John goes back in time. Beyond Bethlehem, if you notice, there's no birth narrative in John. There's no story of of Mary, of the manger, of no room at the inn. John continues on past that. He continues on past the kings and the judges and the patriarchs and the prophets and the lawgivers. He goes back to Genesis 1-1 and even before that. He allows us a glimpse of a glorious person who has an eternal existence. John is also careful here not to only make the point that Jesus is God, that he is divine, but he also makes the point that he is is distinct from God the Father. The word existed before creation and should not be confused with the created. When God said, let us make man in our image, he was speaking to Christ. God was speaking to his Son. He was speaking to the Word. The doctrine of the Trinity is here, the doctrine of the divine, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That Jesus is God, yet distinct from the Father and distinct from the Spirit. And heresies about Christ are not just something in the past that the church fathers and theologians fought over, but the heresies are here and now. I don't, you might be familiar with that. This verse is used by Jehovah's Witnesses to, to turn and mar and change who God is. right? They, say, they don't say that um, the Word was with God and the Word was, and they put it a little article, just a little one-word word, a little article. The Word was a God, just one of many. Not the God, but a God. Lesser than. The problem here is that John, if John intended to mean God, like God-like, there's a whole different word he could have used for that. Instead of, he used theos, right? Theology, where, a Greek word where we get theology from. The study of God. He could have used that word. Secondly, elsewhere, John speaks definitively of the deity of Christ. So we don't just take one verse and interpret it in isolation by itself, but we take all of Scripture and use Scripture to help interpret Scripture. There's other, like, technical Greek reasons why this isn't true as well, but it is true that the Word was God, that He is divine, that He is the Son of God, not lesser than, but distinct, and yet there's unity in one God. We could have sermon after sermon after sermon about the Trinity. So Jesus is the divine word. Jesus is the saving word. Jesus is God, yet he is not distant. He is not far away. He has come down and entered into this world. He broke into creation for the salvation of mankind. Hebrews 2 puts this so well. So the writer writes this, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, right? That not yet part of Christ's reign. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting that he from whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering. But John intended to link the word with God, with the God of Israel in the beginning, but he also wanted the reader to know that this is the God of the Greeks too, the God of the Gentiles, the God of those, probably most of us, who aren't Jewish in nationality or ethnicity or heritage, but that this is not just the God of the Hebrews, of Israel, of the Jews, but it's the God of all mankind. The word for word, kind of funny to say, but the word for word is logos. That's the word John uses here. Logos has a deep and rich meaning in Greek philosophical life. Um, Plato, it's funny, I almost, I almost said plateau because um, I was helping a girl. I'm a, I, I teach in Windsor Locks um, during the week, and uh, I'm in an alternative high school, and this girl was doing an online psych reading for her psychology class, and um, she's reading, and some of the words she doesn't know how to pronounce, so I tell her to spell them, and I'm like, sometimes I can tell her, oh yeah, that's this word. Other times I'm like, I don't even know what that word is, so let's look it up. Um, and then she kept saying plateau, but she was talking about Plato. Um, so it's it stuck in my mind, because it was just yesterday, or uh, just Friday. Plato and, uh, and, uh, writes this. The, one of the fathers of Greek philosophy. He says, um and this is this is astonishing. And you wonder really if John knew the works of Plato as he's writing as he's writing the beginning of this gospel. He says, It may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. It's almost like he's a prophet. Hoping and wondering and waiting. That one day, right, I mean, if, if you're familiar with Plato at all, he like right? He had Plato the cave, and we all live in this cave, and there's these shadows. And we don't, we never know what the real real is, the reality. We only see like a shadow of what's going on in the world. Even like here, right now, you know, time. I, by the time I speak and I'm done speaking, and you're hearing it, it's it's like the future. I'm living in the future, and you're living in the past because sound travels slow. He's saying, well, because of that and things like that, we, we, we can't know the realities of this world. And you, you could see him thinking about that, and what he writes here someday, maybe, hopefully, there will be a logos, a word, a God who will come and reveal these mysteries to us. John seizes this and he says, Look, the philosophy you wrote about, the, fo- the philosophy that you believe and that your fathers have, have written and passed down, Plato and Aristotle, these great, smart men, he said, it's here. It's been revealed. It is here. We have seen him. We have touched him. He has made himself known to us. Jesus is the one that gives meaning and purpose to this life. I think that's a valuable understanding of the scripture for us. Jesus is divinity. He is God. But he's not just out there. He is here and present and has come down and with us even now by His Spirit. There's great meaning and purpose in knowing this God, the Word. I think there are a number of modern day intellectuals that have noticed a decline in meaning. In, um, was it like transcendent meaning, bigger purpose meaning, kind of the bigger narrative, the bigger story? Because for so long we've been told. Um, by postmodernism, this this belief that you your meaning is all that matters, your individual meaning is all that's important, and we've really like as a culture kind of grabbed onto that and said, you know what, that's true, and I'm going to live wholeheartedly for me, and then we see so many things happening and crumbling in our society because, um, I mean, the the rates of the suicide are just so high. Because when your life comes crashing down around you and your meaning, your personal identity and meaning is destroyed, you have nothing else. And that's, it's a complicated issue, but that's one of the things that they're finding. Um, uh, just, um, I can't remember. His, uh, Jordan Peterson has been writing about this a lot. And he's not a Christian, but he writes about how these religions have, have, have like, offer purpose and meaning to people. And I say that in some ways that's true because it helps humanity as a whole look upward instead of totally just inward. But I also think it's false because we see here John is pointing to only one person that can offer that meaning. The word, the logos. Right? The Greeks hope for the logos. The people of today hope for it as well, but they don't even know what to call it. Because looking inward has failed. We've looked in the long place. We don't look inward or outward for ultimate meaning, but we look upward to Jesus. He actually has come to save us from ourselves, to give us life and life more abundant. And lastly, so we've seen Jesus, the divine word, Jesus, the saving word, and now we see Jesus, the life-giving word. It's interesting if you go around to, um, we were in Hobby Lobby the other day, just kind of, you know, before school started back up, and it was kind of like, what should we do? I don't know, it's raining, let's go walk the Holyoke Mall, right? So we go into Hobby Lobby, and there's Christmas stuff up. Now it's a hobby store, maybe it's a little bit of leeway, but there was, it was August still, right, and there was Christmas stuff up, um, and you expect the Halloween stuff to really get going or whatever, but it was there's Christmas. Um, right, and you see it, and you get excited, and there's some parts of our world and our society that wants to make Christmas, like, a 11-month thing. You know, it's like February, time for the Christmas music. Like, let's get that going or, already. It's powerful. It brings up nostalgia for many. Some, maybe some don't have that. You know, they, they didn't have good, like, a Christmas experience as a kid or maybe some really negative feelings about it because of some past things in their life. But I think for generally you look at our culture and we see this great powerful force of nostalgia and and hope. But in what? Right? Like it's Christmas is a time of hope and love. But there's really no anchor to the reasons that Christmas is that way. And we've we've made it something big. Materially, like how can we like make de- decorations and decorate our house and what can we buy and all these things and yet it's so big materially, yet it's so tamed and drained spiritually in what it actually means. It's powerful and yet we've tamed it. And yet John says light has broken into darkness. Um, I have a friend who um, got kind of disillusioned with um, the kind of bigger, better marketing Christian worlds, right? He was a youth pastor, and it was like you got to make your youth ministry bigger and you know lasers and fog machines and uh, give away like cars and whatever. I mean, I'm kind of hyperbolizing here, but. Um, he got disillusioned with it. He left the ministry, and he was in a, um, the banking world for a while, and now he's teaching at a Christian high school, and he's loving it. And every Christmas, he posts something like this. Um, Christmas is, is for those who need it most. Right? Not the glitz and the glamour and the presents and the decorations, but the true, powerful meaning of Christmas. That light broke into darkness in that manger, like smelled with hay and animals. And it was unassuming coronation of a king entering into this world as a baby. And he says that Christmas is for those that need it most. Or sometimes he writes, Christmas is for the broken. And it's so true, but we've made it something else entirely. We've made it something less wonderful, something less awe-inspiring. We have taken a lion and we've put it behind bars and still even then we replaced it with a stuffed, taxidermied version of itself. Right, there's a reason Jesus Christ is called the Lion of Judah. He is not tame. He is powerful. C.S. Lewis, um, who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, um, said of Aslan, the lion, right, who represents Christ in his stories, right, the lion of Judah. And um, the girls, this is the lion, the in in the wardrobe, I believe, and the, the girls are, are scared. They don't know what to make. It's, it's a lion, after all, right? Um, you're trying to walk up to this giant lion. Um, I can't remember the exact words, but uh, they ask him, he says, oh, it's Aslan. Um, he is... Um, He is not, I'm going to say tame, but he is not tame, but he is safe. Think about that. He is not tame, but he is safe. We have tamed Jesus to be just an accessory of Christmas. Yet we know that all life is Christ, both biological and spiritual. By his power, this world was created. And by his death and resurrection and life and ascension, he has given newness of life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. He has made all things and is over all things. And John is moving towards the spiritual, reminded in John 3.16, right? Um, everybody knows that verse. And even if they don't know it, they recognize John 3.16 because they saw it at a football game. Right? Like somebody holding up like a John 3.16 sign. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We usually end there, right? When we, if, if you ever like, were in Awana or something and you memorize John 3:16. John 17 says this, Because God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Saved from death and given life and life more abundant and full than we could ever imagine not tamed but wild and safe he inbroke into this dark place and gave us life and light what's the what's the darkest place that you've ever been you can yeah, you can answer i'll i'll take some i'll take some answers how caverns how caverns I remember going there, but I don't remember inside. And do they shut the lights off on you? And it is totally dark. Totally dark. You took my. I was going to say cave, but no, I can't (laughs) say that anymore. Anybody, Anybody else? Yeah. I think it's a it's oppressive um i had two stories in my mind this one my wife laughs at me for um because it's weird and it's not characteristic of me but we were camping in the adirondacks um kind of right away from a lot of light pollution and we're in the, we're in a tent and it's dark right it's nighttime and i wake up and like my face is right in the tent like it's right there and i can feel it and it's like stuffy and i like i start like, anxiety attack, like, freaking out, like, where's the zipper, get me out of here, like, where's my flashlight, and if you, like, know me, I, like, I always carry a flashlight in my pocket for some reason, it's just something that I've just started doing, and, like, I couldn't find it, and, like, you know, it's just, like, safety, and, like, and I, I was reading, and, like, finally I found the zipper, and, like, fresh air's coming in, but that darkness, it was oppressive, um, I was uh, there's this YouTube channel that I watch called Wrangler Star, and he was telling about the strongest man he ever knew, um, and he's this, he's this homesteader out in Oregon, and this guy who could, you know, hike miles and miles with an 80-pound pack and never really be tired, and he decided to go for this hike in this cave. And it was, he got kind of lost, he was exploring all these, you know, the labyrinth, and his flashlight went out. And he only brought one. Um, I guess in the caving world, one is none, two is one, and three is two, I guess, I don't know. It's like you're supposed to bring three light sources whenever you go in a cave. And, um, and so like for days, like he's like licking water, he's trying to get out, and like he can't see anything, and he's, he's freaking out, and this is a guy that's brave and strong, and um, he wakes up and he's, and he's freaking out because an animal is licking, you could feel the snout of an animal on his face. But he can't see it. It was the rescue dog. It was the rescue dog, and and so he, this, he keeps going on, and he's, and the 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 feeling of being saved and rescued from the darkness and bringing until it it and he goes on. To, I'm just going to tell the story real quick. But he goes on to say later on they went hiking together him and this guy, and uh, when they got to the campsite the guy just grabbed a little smaller pack off his big pack and just went. And He went for like 20 miles up to this peak, and he came back. It was like 3 a.m., complete darkness, and um, with a flat stone and a candle on it. And he said, I, "And he goes, I learned my lesson. My flashlight went on again and again, but I had another light source. He didn't bring two flashlights; he brought a candle, and the candle was burned down to a nub by the time he got back. But to think, it like, think about like you're dark in a cave and you're stuck, and you think this is it, and you, and you could just you're the, opp- the oppression, the cold." You don't know where you are, you are lost. And yet, Christ broke into this dark world to rescue us, to save us. He is the light shining in the darkness that you might see and have life. Do you know God? Do you know what He is like? That Jesus came to reveal God to you. That's what the Bible says that He is the image of God. Because He is God. That light brings life. We see that in the created world, like photosynthesis, right? Energy, light energy. It brings warmth. There's a big difference between a fall day that's overcast and a fall, like you got a sweater and you're feeling great, and then the sun comes out and you're warm. Light brings safety, it guides, it comforts. I pray that you would continue on with us in this journey through John as we re- re- get to see the revelation. Of Jesus Christ as he's revealed to us Through the gospel of John The light shines more and more And we get to see more and more Of what Jesus is like Who is he? How does he help us? How does he save us? How does he give us life? How does he comfort and give us warmth? Even in this dark world Even as we wait Because we're not people without hope. Death is around us. We see people die. Friends and family. People taken far too soon. And we wonder, what is wrong with this place? What is wrong with this world that we live in? Why is it broken? And we're not people that look at that world, and this world that we live in, and are hopeless. But the Bible says that we, even in death, mourn not with the, not like those without hope, but like those that have hope. And in John's gospel, that will be revealed to us more and more as we walk through. And I pray that you would continue on this journey with us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, for your word. For the gospel of John, that you have revealed yourself to us, inspired these men to write down your story, who you are, what you are like, what your purpose is. You that it's breathed out from you through the hands of men. That it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training us up in righteousness so that we can be fully equipped as believers, to do the work that you have for us, that we are people who are given a new purpose, that we might live in that new purpose. God, let us hold up fast to that hope. We pray this in your name. Amen.